seeing the loss of, uh, of, Dave's, of Dave's dad. Um, so that actually, um, that, that update uh, leads us into this, this reality that we are in Advent and we are starting our Advent series today. The season of Advent started last Sunday, uh, but our series through the Advent this year is just called Advent in the Gospels. And uh, we are going to spend uh, some time seeing how each of the Gospels launches the coming of Jesus and how each of the Gospels themes are evident right in the first, in the first verses of each of the Gospel accounts. And so we're going to see that Matthew is leaning into this idea of a king. We're going to see that Mark is leaning into this idea that Jesus is the Son of God. We're going to see that, that uh, these will be in different order, but we're going to see that Luke is leaning into the idea that Jesus is Savior, and we're going to see that John is leaning into the idea that Jesus is the Word. And so over these next weeks, uh, we're going to take one gospel each week and just kind of uh, take a look at how they launch and how they start and what that, author, what that author might be trying to invite us into. But if you're unfamiliar with Advent, and a lot of people are, you know, that, that word Advent means coming. And so if you're talking about the advent of something, you're talking about the coming of something. And the church over the, the, the centuries has, has observed Advent, and uh, there's, there's four Sundays of Advent. And there are the four Sundays before uh, December 25th, the four Sundays leading up to uh, the day that we've marked uh, as the moment where we recognize the birth of Jesus. And this is a season um, that is almost the exact opposite of the Hallmark Channel. So, you know, the Hallmark Channel all, you know, actually starting in July, I believe, they, 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 they do Christmas movies all the time. And they are just, you know, I mean, the downtowns of the little villages they live in or go visit. And, you know, they're all, it's all so warm and it's all so beautiful. And, you know, chocolate, you know, hot chocolate and you know, parades and uh, presents and sweaters and, you know, all, all of these warm holiday ideas. Um, but, but Advent, from, from, a, from a Christian perspective, Advent is actually an invitation to stare at what's wrong with the world. Advent is actually, it, it starts in, in the dark. And, and Advent is this, it's, you know, it, it means coming, but it has a, the, the, main, the main attitude or the main emotion is a longing, a desiring that that coming would actually happen, that the arrival would, 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 would come. And so there's a, there's a, a heaviness uh, to, to Advent. Uh, I shared with our staff this week, I, I, was, I was reading uh, a little interaction, and, and one guy said, you know, every year when Advent begins... I start off in those first, first days of Advent, and what I, what I want to talk to God about is, God, would, would it be possible for this to be the last one? Would it be possible for this to be the last Advent? The, the last time that we come to these four weeks and we recognize that it's still not right, that the world's still broken, and that, that, that there's a recognition there where that, that's staring into the darkness, that's staring into the weightiness. You know, on that card that you have on your chair, uh, one of the things that's happening over the next few weeks is a, a service called the Maybe Service. And that's a, that's a service for, for anyone who is, is feeling the weight of the world. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe it was this year. Maybe it was five years ago. Uh, maybe you've had a tragedy happen. And you might say, man, longest night, isn't that a, you know, that's a mood killer. Why do that December 21st? And it's like, man, it, it couldn't fit in a better spot. Like in the season of Advent is, is when we process this reality. It's when we recognize that the world is, is not right. And then the party starts on December 25th. 
Like that, that, he comes, he shows up, and then there's 12 days of Christmas. And the 12 days of Christmas are the 12 days after Christmas. And so the party, uh, the party starts, and that's why uh, we're having a feast on, on January 1st in order to, to celebrate that reality of, of, a, of a, a Christ who has been uh, born. So our Advent series is going to take these Gospels and it's going to lean into uh, the way that they introduce us to Jesus and how Jesus' arrival or the anticipation of his arrival has something to say about the world in its current condition. The Bible is given to us so that we can start to figure out, so we can start to make sense of what's wrong with the world and what the solution might actually be. So today is the Gospel of, of Matthew. Uh, Matthew's gospel, um, just as a uh, heads up, we are going to be entering a study of the gospel of Matthew. So in January, we're going to start walking through Matthew uh, uh, chapter by chapter and, uh, and working our way through that wonderful gospel. And uh, so I'm, I'm excited about that uh, next, next month. Um, but just as, as a way of kind of orienting ourselves, Matthew's gospel is one of the earliest accounts that we have of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Uh, the earliest traditions say that this, that it's actually an anonymous account, but the earliest traditions say that Matthew, the tax collector, one of the 12 that followed Jesus, is the author. And there's really good reasons to believe that that's right. And one of them is that if you were going to, um, like, if you were going to fake it, if you were going to try to associate a name with it that isn't the author, you would never pick Matthew. That, that would not be the one. He wasn't an all-star. You, you would have picked John or Peter. Or you, you wouldn't have picked Matthew. And so that actually gives it a level of credibility uh, that the earliest, um, you know, the earliest traditions point to Matthew, the tax collector, as the author. Uh, you heard Matt read just a moment ago in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. We see Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You know, why, why does Matthew start with that list? And then you heard Matt read them. And part of the reason why I wanted them to be read is for us to ask, that's how we started off? You know, that, that, that's how we start off this gospel? You know, when I watch a movie, I, I, I kind of have this, this little rule, and it's like, uh, first three to five minutes, especially if this is an action movie, man, the first three to five minutes need to impress me. Like, there, there needs to be something happening here that makes me, re like, believe that this is going to be worth, worth my time. And when you look at Matthew's gospel, it's like, there's a whole bunch of words that are hard to pronounce, and a whole bunch of people that we've never heard of. You know, why does Matthew start with Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then run through this extended genealogy? Well, he wants to show us that Jesus is the continuation of and the fulfillment of the whole biblical storyline. And one of the ways that he does that is by revealing to us that the advent of the king, the coming of the king, is, is actually, it fits in line with a whole bunch of other things. Th think about the way the Old Testament ends. The Old Testament ends, and then there is 400 years of silence. Nothing. No prophets of the Lord speaking. Nothing recorded. Malachi ends, and there's 400 years before there's another word from God. You know, did the whole thing fail? What, what if you were alive during those 400 years? Wouldn't that be some of your questions? That all these promises, all of this stuff that was supposed to happen, all of this making it right, all of God's, all of God's words, like, did it all fail? What about the great rescue? It doesn't feel like that. It wouldn't have felt like that during those 400 years. Well, Matthew is the first thing that we get. When you, when you read your Bible, you get done Malachi, turn a couple pages, and Matthew is the first thing you get. 
And you say, okay, it doesn't seem like it worked out in the Old Testament. It seems like God's people are a mess and they're in exile and it's a train wreck and, and they've, they've failed a million times over. And so what does Matthew do? Does he hide from the Old Testament? No way. Does he say, oh, just ignore that stuff. Like that's, not, uh, that, let, let's restart. That's not at all what he does. He does almost the exact opposite of that. He runs a whole list of people, and he basically says, the more you know about this list, the more it's going to make sense what Jesus does. The, the more you know about these names that are listed here in these first 17 verses, the more Jesus is going to make sense. And so, so Matthew doesn't hide from the Old Testament. He's not embarrassed by the Old Testament. He's not embarrassed by the unanswered questions or the unanswered promises of the Old Testament. He's actually saying, look, God has done something better than we could have imagined. Look at it. Associate it. Make the connections. Connect the dots. And so this, this, uh, this genealogy is a gift to us to recognize that that Old Testament storyline is not forgotten. It's not forsaken. It's actually God still at work uh, on that same exact trajectory. So as you think about the people that would have been uh, in the first audience reading the Gospel of Matthew... Uh, they, they would be primarily a Jewish audience. Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And if you're thinking about that situation of longing for, waiting for, um, you know, that, that, that's what we've been talking about, the word Advent, what, who, who were they waiting for? Were, they, were these people waiting for anyone specific? Were the Jewish people looking for something? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, you're going to see that there's a whole bunch of Old Testament promises that are associated around this idea of a Messiah, of an anointed one, of a king. Who was going This is what is... And the Old Testament is full of these kinds of promises, full of these indicators that this is what is around the corner. And so the people, the, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, they, their longing for this Messiah was, it just kept growing. And you had all kinds of little flares where it's like, maybe this is him. Oh, no, it's not. Maybe this is him. No, it's not. Maybe this is when it's going to happen. And then it doesn't. And it, it fails time and time again. And their longing grows stronger. And they have all of these festivals and feasts where they're remembering and singing and praying and longing for the Messiah to actually come. So it is clear that Matthew wants us to think about that timeline. He wants us to, to reach back to the Old Testament and realize that God has indeed been making promises. And he's been making some pretty specific promises along the way. And so when Matthew starts off in verse 1, and he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He gives us three really, really big names right there. And so let's, let's work backwards. He wants us to see Abraham as the beginning. He wants us to see David as a sort of hinge. And he wants us to see Jesus as the climax. Uh, think of the storyline of the Bible. God makes a promise to Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve are, are created in this perfect world where they walk with God, perfect harmony, shalom, everything is right, perfect peace. And instead of obeying God, they chose to disobey God. They chose to do their own thing, to try to follow their own lead. And when they did, sin poured into the world, and sin destroyed uh, a lot of things, but, but the most essential one was man's relationship with God. And while God is talking with Adam and Eve about the consequences of sin, he makes a, a, a little whisper of a promise. And he says that someone from the line of Eve, 
Someone from her lineage is going to crush Satan. God makes that promise. And it's like the first gospel, and it's so good. Well, as the lineage of Eve unfolds, there's again these opportunities where it's like, is this, is this the, the line of Eve? Is this the, the child of Eve that's going to crush Satan? And time and time again, that fails. But not too far into the book of Genesis, we find a guy named Abraham. And God taps Abraham on the, on the shoulder, and he says, you're in the line, and I'm going to work through you in a way that I have not worked through anybody yet. I'm, I'm choosing you. And through you, I'm going to make a people. I'm going to make a nation. And that becomes the nation of Israel. And he says, I'm going to, I'm going to build a people. It's going to become a nation. But God makes these specific promises to Abraham. And he says a number of different things, but one of the promises that he makes to Abraham is that through Abraham, God is going to bless all the nations, all of them. So he says, I'm picking you, and through your offspring, there's going to be a specific people that I'm going to do some unique things with in the world. That's the nation of Israel. But God also says, through you, I'm going to bless the entire earth, all of the nations, and Matthew is telling us how all those nations are going to get blessed. Matthew is revealing to us, you know, it, 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 what, everyone wants to know, that, that, you know who, who, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? By this time, obviously, Jesus has died and risen again. Matthew is giving us an account of his life. And as Matthew looks back and says, how do I onboard people? How do I bring them into the storyline of who Jesus is? That Matthew is saying that Jesus is the son of Abraham. So one one scholar says, Matthew is kind of, you know, a a typical question might be, is Jesus more Jew or more new? When Matthew tells the story of Jesus, is he throwing off the Jewish story and saying, no, no, trust me, that doesn't matter anymore. Jesus is this new thing. Is he more Jew or is he more new? And the answer is yes. Matthew doesn't shy away from Jesus' Jewness at all. He, he, wants, he wants people to know that Jesus is of the line of Abraham and that this promise that Jesus will bless all the nations of the earth, that it is most clearly coming to fruition in the person of Jesus. Well, how will Jesus bless the world? Look at that genealogy. You know, if you heard it or caught it as it was read, maybe you noticed that there were four women mentioned in the genealogy. And that is not a common practice for ancient genealogies. In verse 3, you see Tamar. In verse 5, you see Rahab and Ruth. In verse 6, you see the wife of Uriah. Her name is Bathsheba. And so it's not common to have women in a genealogy. All four of them have some level of scandal associated with their stories. So that's an odd inclusion if you're talking about Jesus as as, uh, some sort of a savior. And then they're all foreigners, Bible scholars believe that all four of these women, that not, not one of them is, is, Jew, is Jewish, is an Israelite. So Jesus is, what, what, what is Matthew showing us? That in Jesus' own genealogy, the door is wide open. That Jesus' reach is not just to the Jewish people, it's beyond that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. And so the door is open to outsiders, you might say. It's open to foreigners. In other words, to the whole world. How is God, through the line of Abraham, going to bless the whole world? Well, this this is the culmination right here, the person of Jesus. 
And so Matthew wants them to, to associate Jesus with Abraham and the promises that were made to Abraham, and primarily this idea that all the nations are going to be blessed through Abraham. Well, then Matthew uses the phrase, we're going in reverse order here, the son, the son of David. So this is associating Jesus with royalty, with a king, but not just any king, with the king eternal. See, David is in that same line of Eve that came through Abraham. And David became the king of Israel. And he's kind of the, the poster child of the kings of Israel. And just like Abraham, God comes to David and God makes David promises. In first century Judaism, there were a whole bunch of messianic hopes that had bubbled up. The, Jew, the Jewish people had come up with all kinds of various things from the Old Testament that they were associating with, this is what the Messiah is going to be like, or this is what the Messiah is going to do. But, but New Testament scholar Janine Brown says that the Davidic king emerged as the most common expectation. So of all the things that they associated with the Messiah, the idea that he would be of the Davidic line, that he would be the promised one, because of the promises that God made to David, God said to David, your, your son is going to rule on the, on the throne forever. Forever. And so you can see why the, the, the Jewish people would associate the Davidic king with the great hope of this Messiah, that he's going to be of the line of David. He's going to be the son of David that sits on the throne forever. And in fact, son of David is actually Matthew's favorite title for Jesus. He uses it very frequently because he is tying Jesus to the Davidic king. He is tying Jesus to the son of David who will sit on the throne forever. He's leaning into the Jewish longings and into the kingly nature of Jesus. And then that third, that third name is, is Jesus Christ. And the word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. And that's used four times in verses 1 through 18. Four times Jesus is associated with the Christ. It's a term that the Jewish people knew very well. They were all longing for the coming of the Messiah, for the anointed one. That, that Messiah, uh, the messianic hope, this idea of the son of David reigning on the throne forever, they were longing for it. And Matthew says, I want these two words to go together. Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title, and it is Jesus the Messiah. You could say this is King Jesus. And so Matthew's leaning into all these longings, and then he says, this is him. This is the Christ. This is Jesus. He is the Christ. You know, Matthew uses something called a chiastic structure here. And you need to remember that when the Bible was written, it was meant to be read aloud and memorized. Very few people had copies. I mean, basically no one had copies. And so the, the scrolls were read and you had to remember them. And so there's all these tricks that the, that the, the scribes used as they, as they uh, wrote, wrote, the, wrote the scriptures to help people remember. And chiastic structure was one of them. And that just has a certain rhythm to it. And there's a few kinds of chiastic structures. But what, what Matthew does here is look at verse one. He says, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then go down to verse 17. He reverses the order. He inverts it. And he starts with Abraham, then goes to David, and ends with Christ. And so what that chiastic structure is doing to us is saying, guess what it starts with? Jesus Christ. Guess what it ends with? Jesus Christ. He's the point of this. 
It's not just for history. It's not just to make sure all the genealogical stuff is right. It's, the point is that Jesus is the beginning and the end. He is the focal point of what, Jesus, of what Matthew wants people to see. He wants to show that Jesus is the main point, and he doesn't want us to miss him. They were waiting for a king to come, and Jesus is that king. Well, wh- why is the king good news? I mean, you know, so Jesus is the king that the people were waiting for, but is that good news? I mean, Israel had a lot of kings. Every one of them failed, and honestly, like most of them were terrible. So th- th- this is where we have to remember all of the Old Testament promises and all the hopes and dreams that the Jewish people had associated with the Messiah. When they looked at the Old Testament and they read these promises, the conclusion was that this Messiah could make everything right. Like, add up all the promises. This Messiah could make the world right. He, he could lead the people and the land to, to flourishing and to joy. He could free Israel from all of their oppressors. He could actually cause justice to flow like a river, to cover the land, for it to be a place of, of justice and righteousness. Man, don't you long for that too? I know we're 2,000 years later in the story, but don't you long to see the world made right? And we sing a song that says, do you feel the darkness coming? Yes, yes I do. A lack of peace in the world, brokenness in the world. And we're so tempted to run to, to, to earthly kings and to earthly solutions. And we're in a cultural moment right now where, man, politics tends to be the hope that we turn to. If we could get the right king, quote unquote, if we could get the right leader in place, then maybe we can turn this thing around. Maybe they are the answer to our problems. So all these realities are at play for the people of of Israel. They are longing for a king who could come make things right. But there is another plot twist that most did not see coming. See, while Jesus could do all of those things and even more, than their highest expectations. He did not come to do all of those things when he showed up 2,000 years ago. King Jesus came the first time to make the way for us to be reconciled to God. Do You notice that Abraham, David, and Jesus were the markers in verse 1 and in verse 17. But there's actually four sections. So you got... Abraham, David, and Jesus, but there's actually four sections. And the one that's missing is the section on exile. And so Matthew says there's 14 generations from Abraham to David, okay? And then there's 14 generations from David to exile. And then there's 14 generations from exile to Jesus. Now, if if you're into this kind of thing, he doesn't mean literal that there's actually 14. He's just identifying 14. And so there's a rhythm to this. 14 generations from Abraham to David, and then 14 generations from David to exile, and then 14 generations from exile to who? This Christ. And what what he's trying to associate, or what he's trying to show us, is that after Abraham comes David, and David is this king that brings a level of peace and prosperity to the people of Israel. But what happens after David? It all falls apart. The kingdom goes into exile, it's a mess. Babylon and other countries just dominate Israel. And as, as, as Matthew is giving this history, his, this history he is showing that it, it, does, it hasn't stopped. 
that there's 14 generations from, from David to exile and then 14 generations from exile to, to who? To Jesus. And Matthew is showing that until the arrival of Jesus, exile was still the story. Now, were they under exile to Babylon? No, you know, that had ended a long time ago. But, Jesus, but Matthew wants to think about something else. He's pointing this fact that in Jesus Christ, the exile is actually over. 28 of those generations from David to Christ are exile generations. 28 of those generations are a, are a nation that is suffering under the oppression of foreign forces. And Matthew says, when Jesus shows up, I got such good news. The exile is over. Again, not the physical exile, a better solution. Matthew is going to show us that Jesus is not most concerned with the real-time oppression of Rome in the first century. That's what they all wanted Jesus to do. They wanted Jesus to throw off Rome. But Jesus was not most interested in that. He was much more interested in the long-standing spiritual oppression of life apart from God that had been the story of the world. And Matthew wants, wants everyone to associate this reality that whether they were physically in exile or not, they've been spiritually in exile. It's been a mess. And here comes Jesus, and he has something to say about that exile. King Jesus, Messiah, he came the first time to seek and to save the lost. He told us that. The first time he came, he came to bring us peace with God. That, that was the peace that he came to bring. And he offers it to you even now. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Jesus Christ suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That, that's what Jesus came for the first time, and he did it. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But the plot twist is that he did it, and then he left. He provided the way for us to be reconciled to God, and then he left, and he said, I'm going to go away for a while. I'll be back, but I'm leaving. And can you imagine all of the anticipation? I mean, Matthew was one of the disciples. All the expectation, all the anticipation. And then Jesus leaves. So now we're waiting too. That was almost 2,000 years ago. We get the account in Matthew 28 where his disciples, his followers have all gathered on the mountain and Jesus ascends to the Father. It's been almost 2,000 years. That is a long time to wait. If you have some level of compassion for the Jewish people waiting for Jesus to come the first time, man, we, we, we should have an incredible amount of, uh, of compassion for the followers of Jesus who've been waiting 2,000 years for him to come the second time. We are waiting, but boy, we are invited to wait with full of hope. And why? Because there are more promises. There's more promises about what he's going to do. There's more promises that as much as it's incredible that he restored the opportunity for us to be right with God, he's actually promised to come make the whole place new. Not just be a good king who can like win a few battles. Not just be a good king who can like make the economy work for more people. No, he's the kind of king that can come and make every single thing new. As we think about this season of Advent, 
I've been dwelling on this quote, my staff's probably tired of hearing it, but Fleming Rutledge, she, she said that Advent is not for sissies. That Advent is a time where we actually wrestle with this reality, that we have been waiting 2,000 years and that we feel the brokenness. That Advent does indeed start in the dark of our current situation. But listen, it points to the light. It might not be full light yet, but it points to that light. And we are invited to hold on to those promises, even better promises than just a king who can win a few battles or make the, uh, the, the economy work, but to, to long for the day when he comes and makes everything new. There's a little scene towards the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy in Return of the King. And one of the characters says to the other character, when I look at the situation, this is the context, he says this, the reason of my waking mind, so my ability to discern and to think with my mind, tells me that great evil has befallen and we stand at the end of days. But my heart says, nay, and all my limbs are light and a hope and joy are come to me that no reason can deny. In this hour, I do not believe that any darkness will endure. Now he's saying that in the face of darkness. He says, my mind looks at this and says, it's the end. It's all over. There's no coming back from this. And he's like, but in my heart, in my heart, there's a hope and there's a joy. It makes my limbs light. No reason can deny what's going on in my heart. In this hour, I do not believe that any darkness will endure. It's the hope that the Christian is invited into, this recognition that King Jesus came to reconcile the lost, to, to win, to seek and to save. And he offers it to you, a rescue so that you can be brought back to God by faith alone. It's such an incredible gift, but he's coming again. And when he comes a second time, he's coming to bring his eternal perfect kingdom in full. So the first time he came to bring us peace with God, the second time he comes, he's coming to bring peace everywhere. Shalom, everything right. You know, there's an old Christmas carol called, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Listen to some of these lyrics from verse one. It says, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And you jump down to verse 4. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. These are the invitations of, 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 an, of an Advent mind, of an Advent heart, a longing for Jesus to come and do these kinds of things, for him to meet us in all of our hopes and fears of all the years right now. For him to, to cast out our sin and to enter in, be born in my heart right now, today. This is the incredible gift that Jesus offers. And then we wait. We wait with hope. We wait with eagerness. We wait with light limbs for the day when Jesus comes and makes all things new. And we're going to go to the table. And my invitation to you is take the bread and take the cup. If you're a follower of Jesus, take that bread and take that cup with a heart full of joy. And just maybe even think about what would it be like to have light limbs, limbs that reason cannot deny, an eagerness and a hopefulness that the darkness is not going to be here forever. That's the hope that Jesus offers to you right now.
Let's pray. God, thank you for this, this gift of a genealogy, for the invitation to consider what it is that you did uh, in, in and through Abraham, what it is that you did in and through David, what it is that you have done and are doing in and through Jesus Christ. God, we, we recognize the brokenness of the world. We actually uh, have a lot of examples of how leaders and kings break things and wreck things. We thank you that Matthew invites us to consider the fact that there's a king coming who's going to make every single thing right, make it all new. God, we thank you for your great gift of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.